So what's it like growing up in Milton Keynes? Oh, oh. Purple white to begin. I know. I, I was expecting comedy questions. <laughs> Milton Keynes. Uh, it was alright. Do you know what? I said this before to somebody. Milton Keynes is one of those places, I guess everywhere's the same, where when you're growing up in it, yeah. you hate it. And you yeah. just want to be elsewhere because you've got this big picture of what, you know, the grass is green on the other side. Yeah, and all yeah. these exciting, wonderful places across the world. Yeah. Um, and I did get out. I went off to university uh, just outside Manchester. Oh, nice. Which one did you go to? It was Manchester Met Uni. All right. Uh, but it was a little place called Alsager, which mm-hmm. is a tiny village um, just on the edge of Crewe, really. Um, and it it was a weird little backward village in the imagine. middle of nowhere <laughs> where you were either a student or a local and the, the two paths should never cross because uh, the, the students didn't like the locals, the locals didn't like the students. Um, and it was, um, yeah, an, an interesting and quite odd experience mm. really for a place to be. Um, and then when I finished at uni, I ended up moving back this way, um, but bought my first place in Northampton. Mm. And it was just a case of wanting to be back in back in MK, really. Um, not because not because it's the most exciting place in the world, no. but I, I like the mix of um, I like the mix of things that you have here. It's very much a case of you can have. You know, your, your shopping centre, nightclubs, bars kind of place, five minutes one way, mm-hmm. yet you can be out in open countryside five minutes drive the other way. Yeah. Um, so you've kind of got a nice blend of everything. And um, there are definitely worse places to be. Of Let's put it are. that way. Like, like Coventry, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and loads, actually, that I've seen <laughs> through going out gigging. You end oh, up in some places you think, uh, where the fuck is it? Like, I, was, I, I did a gig in Berkhamsted. I think I told you about this on the way here, but did a gig in Berkhamsted um, the other week. And the gig itself was lovely, right? But it's about... A, the I got off of Berkhamsted Station, and it's about a 37-minute walk oh, in Ber- to, yeah. the, to, the, to the pub. So I did that in pitch black on a, and some of the roads don't have pavements yeah so yeah I'm pretty lucky terrible. to be alive <laughs> sometimes you do you just find yourself in these places don't you and you think what on earth is going on here yeah. I, I remember turning up at one I think it was just on the outskirts of Birmingham and um, it used to be an old like pharmacy mm. or something that had been turned into a little microbrewery nice but just the outside of these shops and the streets I mean I genuinely was quite scared walking along the street up to this place but then you walk in through the door and it just opens up into this lovely magical gig with all these uh you know friendly people and and a lovely warm and inviting bar and yeah yeah it's amazing what's out there really Mm. so what actually shaped you like and what i like to figure out is we will talk about comedy like in a minute in a bit yeah but what i want to know is what forms in how entertainers are formed right? right so what was it like growing up for you um well my i suppose i suppose the closest i'm going to get to answering that question is because I, I mean i had a very nice upbringing uh I was, that is so rare isn't yeah, it yeah <laughs> i know like comedians will go well i was broken and uh, yeah. i had this horrible thing i didn't i, I was genuinely quite lucky growing yeah. up um and yeah you know, i i 
guess a normal upbringing. I don't yeah. know what normal is. I don't normal's, suppose anyway. Normal's relative, isn't it? Like, yeah. Um, it just seems to be... I mean, I had... The, the thing that I would say is I had um, quite religious parents. Um, and my parents are people who are sort of involved in the community kind of people through the church so my mum was a teacher at the primary school Mm. my dad um was heavily involved in the church um he was a magistrate alongside his job in in personnel as it was then human resources Mm. now um and they were just sort of people that were always involved in things you know um so a lot of people when i was growing up other kids would know who my parents you know that sort of they would know who my parents were and i i did did find that quite traumatic i was deeply kind of like um i don't know wanted to be wanted to be my own person i suppose didn't want to be defined by being the son of the, these other people who were um i hesitate to use the phrase do-gooders because that's not what i mean <laughs> at all but that's how i guess as a teenager that's how i saw it it was quite embarrassing and it was quite you know um but actually they're just lo- lovely people yeah. who do good things for the yeah. community um so that kind of shaped i suppose my take on on what i was like as an individual mm. um i did all right at school um and when i I assumed my big thing when i was growing up was drama and acting so i always assumed that the moment that school finished i was going to go and be a professional actor Mm. um i had had a little bit of like i did a couple of tv commercials which ones oh um i did um I did a commercial for Dr Pepper. Oh yeah, that very was very good. exciting. Um, and Terrible I, drink though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Horrible. I don't. I don't really drink it. Oh. I don't really. Uh, but it was. It was very weird. It yeah. was. Um, they did a whole series of them with a character called Dr Pepper. What's the worst? Nurse Pepper. Happen? Yeah. Before all of that. Yeah. And um, the, it was weird. Like they had. I think we had to play Russian roulette with these cans of Dr Pepper, and then one of them was going to explode, and oh. the guy's head came off. And it was like a surf. Show. It was just the most surreal, mental. I think kind I of, remember that advert. Nobody remembers that advert. You're bullshitting. I'm nobody not, I'm nobody not. remembers that advert. Um, and um, yeah, there was another one for. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't over. It was fresh. Fresh start potatoes in the in the United States. Um, and a couple of things like extra stuff on the bill and, and um, a programme called Cone Zone, which was a kids TV thing. <laughs> but it was enough that made 15 year old me go, oh, well, I'm just going to be an actor then because yeah. that's how it works. You yeah. just want to be an actor and you get given work and actually uh, it's quite well paid work because of that. I mean, the Dr. Pepper one that I did, I think I got paid a, a thousand pounds or something. <sighs> so for a 15 year old boy suddenly having a thousand pounds going this is amazing you know now if you earn a thousand pound once every year or whatever it was that i actually did it you'd be in in all sorts of trouble but for me it was like oh that's fine i'll easily just make a living doing that that will be that will be nice um so yeah i got a bit of a rude awakening really when uh when the real world hit and i had to um to go and do proper jobs and not just 
go straight into this world of acting mm. that I assumed would be a piece of cake to do. Yeah. So when you did the commercials, right, was that during school holidays or did you take time off school? No, it was great. You had time off school to do oh, it. And it was lovely because I had so stuff. I did quite, I mean, I did those few, I've, I've literally listed my entire CV <laughs> in, in the space of that conversation. But I did a lot of auditions. Yeah. And it was lovely because you would, um, you'd be sat in like history or something at school and all of a sudden a message would come through that you've got an audition that afternoon and nice. can you can you go to a reception because you've got to go down to London and do this nice. audition. And it was great. I think a lot of the, the other kids were quite envious of that really because mm. I'd just get dragged out of school to go down to London and mm. do yet another audition that I didn't get the job for. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, it was good. It was That was quite nice. I enjoyed that. So you got the acting informed by quite young then. Yeah, oh, literally, um, I was six years old and I was taken to the West End by my parents. Oh, what did you say? Um, oh, <laughs> I, I saw cats in the West End. How did I know that you would say, okay, great. I saw cats, which is about to come. Now I've got a daughter who's like following in the kind of drama, dance, yeah. singing thing. Uh, so I've got... A, 14 year old daughter and Cats is about to come out in the cinema, in the cinema yeah. isn't it and she's she's like roped me into definitely agreeing to take her to the cinema as soon as that comes out because okay. I think she thinks I'm going to be reliving my youth in some <laughs> way yeah, and, and like desperately getting the acting bug again but I did I can I genuinely remember walking out of that theatre mm. and uh, looking at my dad and saying that's what I want to do when I grow up nice. and just just sort of sticking with it really it never mm. it never sort of went away and even now when I go to the theatre nine times out of ten I'll still yeah. come away going oh, I wish I could just play that same. Oh, I wish I could just do that same oh. um, I think the last show I went to see was The Book of Mormon yeah I love that uh, it's fucking fantastic like um, the South Park guys are brilliant but Robert Lopez is like the he's the um He's the silent backbone of all these rude yeah. musicals. He also did Avenue Q and he did some other ones as well. Yeah. But I just walked out of thinking, my God, I wish that I was that talented to be have actually write something like that. Yeah. Or to be able to perform something in that or perform something in that way. I know, it's like the the, the South Park guys, like you say, are yeah. absolutely brilliant. And they do it in such a a clever way. Because, you know, on one level it is just offensive jokes as, yeah. as much as you possibly can yeah. uh, and and I remember seeing an interview with them where they said that you know they they justified <laughs> the, they justified their quite brutal take on the way that they pick on groups by saying yeah, yeah but we don't single anyone out we literally pick on everyone yeah, <laughs> so true. it's absolutely it's fine um, well, you know I think that's alright and like you've seen the book you've obviously seen the book of Mormon yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it's honestly the mo- one of the most religiously inclusive show and, really, and accepting shows actually that's actually happened a lot I think, apart from Joseph and the Technicolor Drinker obviously but like I think uh, Matt Stone I don't want to misquote him but Matt Stone said something like uh, it's a love letter to uh, it's a love letter to the Mormons yeah. from an atheist which yeah. I think was a really nice way of describing it yeah. really well, it's, it's, basically, it's basically saying that sure believe yeah, you can sure definitely believe in God, that's great. But you have to understand that these texts were written by man a long time ago, a long time mm. ago and they've been reinterpreted many, many times. Mm. 
and they've been re- and they've been um, what's the word called? They've been put into English a lot. Lots yeah, of translated. Like, translated. That's the word. They've been translated into many different languages and many different and many different intonations. So we can't take everything in these books for gospel, but it's important that we're good people, that we're just good people trying to live good lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a similar thing. Do you remember when um, when Stuart Lee did uh, Jerry Springer the Opera? Did I, you ever see that? No, I didn't. I was... uh, and there was I, I went to see that, and there was literally people protesting outside the theatre, religious groups protesting outside the theatre, because there was all sorts of... Uh, they had Jesus on stage in a nappy. was <laughs> the big thing that they got kind of um, berated for, I suppose. And they had uh, tap-dancing Ku Klux Klan members nice. on stage. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a history of people kind of going, all right, let's not just accept everything at face value let's mm. challenge some of these ideas yeah um and i think that's important i think that's a good thing really well yeah like otherwise where would we be if we didn't criticize and look at if we didn't criticize things which was well and if you didn't just take things at face value so where was your first comedy gig my first comedy gig um was uh i did a course because i had I had this idea that I was going to make a documentary yeah. about learning how to be a comedian and uh, at the end of the year, then I would take a show up to Edinburgh. Which is great, by the way, I've seen. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Thank yes, you. Um, it, and, yeah, so the first gig, I sort of... So it was a weird kind of way into comedy. Because I had that idea that I was going to make the documentary, mm. I set about in, like trying to set up interviews with people. So I set up an interview with a guy called Oliver Double, who was, um, who's an academic, used to be a stand-up comedian in the 90s, now yeah. runs a stand-up course in Kent. And I'd read, um, he's got a couple of books out, and I'd read both of those over and over again, over a number of years, while I'd been talking about this idea of being a stand-up, and never done it, because I was terrified of doing it. Um, anyway, I'm getting... Off the off the point, but I love them. No, stay uh, off the th- point. That's no, it. Don't, just go, 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 don't go back to weird the point. tangent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the point I'm trying to make, I suppose, is that when I approached it, I was thinking about how I was going to make this documentary, mm-hmm. and and then I suddenly went, oh shit, I'm going to actually have to learn how to be a comedian yeah, as yeah. part of this as well. So I signed up to a course, um, the comedy school in Camden, mm-hmm. which was running every uh every sunday for six weeks and at the end of that six weeks there was a showcase at the backyard comedy club um and that was my first gig was doing this showcase and a couple of people had who were on the course had done some gigs in the meantime like whilst the, the the thing was going on yeah um over the six weeks they'd done a couple of sort of tester gear warm-up gigs and i refused to do that um i think because i had some idea in my head that the the story of the documentary had to follow that I'd done this course and then this was going to be my big first gig. Um, So yeah, I I waited until then. And that was the first one that I did in October, 2016. Mm. And I loved it. It was great. I mean, it was doing, you had two courses running at the same time, one on a Thursday, one on a Sunday. And all of those people were doing their first gig on that night in the backyard. So there was about 24 comedians Mm. on all doing five minutes, um, all had brought people with them mm. to come and watch their first gig. So you had this lovely, warm, supportive audience who were all 
you know, ready for people to do well and yeah. wanting people to do well uh, in what is a very established comedy club. Yeah. Um, and it was just beautiful. And then, and then about five days later, I did my second gig, which was in a pub in Olney, just up the road from Milton Keynes, Ooh. with six people in, two of which were the headliner's parents. <laughs> Four had been sort of dragged in from nowhere. I did the same five minutes and got, I think, maybe two laughs okay. in the whole of the oh, five minutes. No. And just had this immediate reality check of like, mm. oh, okay, so it's not all like that first night in no. the backyard. <laughs> this is actually what it's probably going to be like for the next year. Yeah. Because at that stage, I, I hadn't looked beyond... I, I had this plan for a year... Um, but I didn't look beyond that at all. As mm. far as I was concerned, I was going to make a film about being a stand-up, and then who knows, mm. probably look for the next film to make, because yeah. that was kind of what I was into. Yeah. Um, had no idea that I would end up going, actually, I love doing stand-up, that's what I want to do, I'm mm. not going to keep making more films, I'm going to try and pursue being a comedian. So how did you get the likes of Acastor and others to get on board with doing the documentary um pure luck really i emailed i remember emailing out to i what i did was i looked at comedians that were coming to milton keynes we've got a couple of venues there's milton keynes theater um and also a place called the stables that is really a music venue but it does comedy quite regularly um and i looked at their lineup for who was coming and just emailed all of the agents and said, you know, I'm making this documentary, I'm a complete unknown. I don't suppose that uh, your act would be prepared to give us 20 minutes mm. to uh, to have a chat to them. Most people just roundly ignored my email. Yeah, um, I know that feeling. <laughs> Jimmy Carr's agent emailed me back um, saying... Uh, he's far too busy for this sort of thing, but good luck with it. And I remember being over the moon that I'd even just had a response. Um, And then, yeah, James Acaster's agent said, yeah, by by all means, he'll sit and have a chat to you. And uh, and it was lovely. He did, um, he was doing his show at the stables and we sort of went in a little bit unsure. I mean, you've got to remember when we were making this, we're not, uh, (laughs) it was me, my brother, and a mate of mine who, because I work in a school, he's the uh, he's the theatre technician at my school. Um, so I rely on him for everything that I've ever done that's technical. Yeah. He edited the film and he, you know, everything that I've ever done, he's he's kind of backed me up on. Um, but that was it. We, we were complete chances yeah. just wandering into this thing. I mean, I pretty much just about planned a few questions that yeah. I was going to ask him. And that was all the, the thought and planning that had gone into it. Um, and he gave us, I think it was about 45 minutes that we ended up sat down having a chat for prior to him going on stage and doing his show. And looking back now, I don't know why he agreed to it. To be <laughs> I've got no idea. But, um, and you could see as well, you could see in his eyes, kind of, who is this guy? Like, what, yeah. what, does he really think this is a good idea? You know. <laughs> and there's a there's a moment that I can remember being halfway through interviewing him where he just sort of took a deep breath and went, "All right, well, if he wants to know, I'll tell him." And, and yeah. just relaxed and, and yeah. just stopped trying to work me out and just went, "Okay." And, and from that moment on, we had a lovely sort of chat, and uh, he was great. He gave me so such good advice. The best thing that he told me, although it really was off camera. Um, and afterwards, he said, 
you're you're not the first person who's tried to make a documentary about being a comedian. You're not the first person to do this. Uh, and what tends to happen is that the 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 new comedians who are making these films get about twenty gigs in. They have a good gig. And then they think that they know how to do comedy. They think they know everything. And he said, if you just stay, so how you've been now, where you are genuinely wanting to know the answer to these questions yeah. and, and genuinely keep wanting to learn and wanting to find out, he said, you'll be fine. And yeah. that, that's, that was really good. Because obviously over, over that first year, there were moments that were successful. Yeah. There were other moments that were real low points. And constantly I had this nagging little James Acaster voice in the back of my head going, don't be a dick, don't be a dick, mm. just keep learning and keep trying to trying to get it right. Yeah. Uh, and that was really, I mean, I've done, when I interviewed him, I've done three gigs. So uh, it was really nice to have that right at the beginning. Mm. And, and, and also, um, at the time, he wasn't a household name. Which sounds mad now because everybody sort of talked about it. he's done the Netflix specials and all that kind of thing. But I also remember saying to people, oh, James Acaster's agreed to be interviewed for this thing I'm doing. And they were kind of going, who? who? A lot of people didn't really know. My brother, who we took with us, didn't know who James Acaster was when we were going to do it. Bizarrely, the, the guy who I said was uh, a tech for me, Tim McDonald, um, my very good friend, he used to be a drummer in a band called Capdown. Um, and they were they were sort of, again, people go, who? But amongst the scene, they were fairly well known. Yeah. <laughs> and we sat interviewing James Acaster, who used to be a drummer. And at the end of the interview, uh, my mate Tim said to him, I oh, see so you play drums, blah, blah, blah. And James Acaster went, I knew I knew you. I knew I knew you. And he recognised Tim from Capdown and was like chuffed to be meeting him. And I was thinking, hang on a minute, this is completely mental. What's going on here? Um, so, yeah, that was good. Really good. So, you went from, so that was that was all before you actually made the, that was actually before you actually got on the A1 to yes. the long road, the long road to Edinburgh, which is the title of the documentary. Yeah. So when you actually got to Edinburgh, what was your first impressions of it? Oh man. Because um, obviously you did it this, you did it again this this. I year. went back this year, yeah. yeah, with another show. When I so well, there's two things. One is that when I first had the idea to make the film in 2016 it was while Edinburgh was going on in the August yeah. of 2016 and I think I, I can't really remember but I must have read an article about Edinburgh or something and we'd been making these short films and things and I think all the pieces kind of fell in together yeah. and I said uh, initially at that point I said right next year so 2017 I'll go up to Edinburgh and I'll see what it's like and do a bit of filming and meet some people and then I'll start the clock running and I'll give myself a year to, to, to do it so the the show would have been in 2018 and I said that to my wife and um, and she said no you won't she said either you'll spend the next year over planning it and it will become you know it will become too kind of set up and it won't be spontaneous and it won't feel real or you'll spend the next year talking yourself out of doing it mm. if you're going to do it you need to do it now uh, and you need to go to Edinburgh and film it this year and give yourself a year from now. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> that was, um, That's weird. Okay. Like, most, people, most other halves would be like, you're not going. <laughs> yeah. Except, well, she keep, all of her friends keep sort of saying, 
how do you let him get away with this? <laughs> what what are you doing letting him just go and do all these mental things? Um, but she was very, very supportive and very good about it. I think, actually, it's the only way that it ever would have worked mm. because she didn't know what she was letting herself in for. <laughs> she had no idea. And and I've said about this a lot of times. Um, kind of, I did... Um, I interviewed Stu Goldsmith as part of the as part yeah. of the documentary, and he was sort of saying to me about the impact on my family. At that point, he he had a, a his first child was still very young. Not Boutros. Boutros, yeah. yeah. So uh, I was talking about um, I was talking to him about sort of the impact on the family, and I said that that whilst it was all going on, I was very much in the mindset of well, this is going to be tough for me. It's going to be really difficult. All these pressures that I'm going to have doing this. Didn't really consider the, the knock-on impact on my wife, my kids, my um, my brother who was coming around filming. His um, daughter apparently said to, to my sister-in-law um, when we were off at a gig one night and he was off filming me and said, oh, he's, I can't remember exactly, but along the lines of, oh, is daddy not coming home again to oh. put me to bed? And, you know, all these people were affected by what we were, what I was going off doing. Um, and, yeah, I sort of just selfishly, you know, <laughs> bundled them all in and, and took them along for the ride, really, <laughs> which, um, yeah, I hadn't really considered. So my wife, when she said, you need to go and do this now, I don't think she was really sure what what that involved and what that meant um none of us were so um i'm not it would be interesting to i don't dare ask her but it would be interesting to ask her if knowing what she knew then knowing what she knows now if she would still have said exactly the same thing Mm. um but it meant that i'd gone up to edinburgh so three days later the three of us were on a plane up to Edinburgh and we went and we spent 24 hours running around Edinburgh meeting comedians uh, filming little bits of the city and me sort of talking about what my plan was going to be at the time it felt like that was a massive part of the documentary it was going to be like this is it all starting and this is the kickoff and it was going to be a big part of it it ended up being about 45 seconds of mm. the of the final film is us doing this little trip to Edinburgh mm. but it meant that I had a bit of an idea of what it was going to be like because I'd been and spoken to these performers and met all these people and it was mad like we met um Mark Dolan who was doing a gig he was doing a gig called the worst the worst show at the fringe which is a gig That's that Nigel Lovell runs yeah. yeah um and we went and saw that and spoke to them. I interviewed Nigel and I interviewed Mark Dolan in a broom cupboard uh, <laughs> at the back of the venue because it was the only place we could find that was quiet and uh, I don't know if you know Mark but he um, he greeted me I'd never met him before and he greeted me like an old friend <laughs> he was like hey how you doing and then um, um, and we got chatting and I just sort of chanced my arm and asked him if he would do this interview yeah. and he'd been so lovely and warm with his welcome I don't know if he did think he knew me or I've seen him yeah. since meeting people and I think he's just lovely to everybody yeah. that he ever meets um, but he'd been so lovely and warm that I don't think he could really say no. <laughs> <laughs> Ten minutes later, we're sat in this broom cupboard sort of doing this interview. And, um, yeah, just finding out what it was all going to be like. So when I actually arrived in Edinburgh to do my show a year later, um, I kind of 
knew what to expect. I knew that my venue was a long way out from the main where were you? Hubbub. Um, it was at the time it was called Moriarty's. Oh yeah. It's now changed. It's now, I think it's called like Raging Bull. Or Raging Bull. Like that's that. the Is one. that right? Yeah, yeah that's it. Um, so up that on is, the, up on the Lothian Road, it's a bit of a way out. It's from... it's out from. It's not. It's um. It's before the bridge, isn't it? It's a bit be- well. From what it's I'm... sort of uh, so if you go along grass if you go from the mile down onto grass yeah, market yeah. and then just keep going yeah um out towards where the conference center is and all of that kind of thing it's a lot it's along the Lothian road there but the, it's a bit on its own there's not really it's not like there's a hub of other venues around it mm. it's just on its own um so i was a bit anxious about how we would get people in there um Although the first, I mean, we turned up the night before the first show, uh, and on that fir- on the opening night, we had like twenty people in, and I thought, well, this is great, you know, if I can maintain this right the way through, then that will be fine. Actually, my first year up here, performing to twenty people every night will be great. Mm. Um, second night there was four, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, that, again, that gave us a real sort of reality check about how difficult it was actually going to be. Mm. Uh, but flyering outside the venue was an absolute dead loss because it was all just people who were uh, either commuters or people out shopping. There wasn't really people there looking for shows. And it took me about 10 days before um, a guy who was on after me uh, in the venue said, why don't you go down to Grass Market earlier in the day and do some flying in there? And he said, if you do that, people will come. People will come out and uh, make the make the journey if they're interested in seeing your show mm. and that really worked that was great great advice so um yeah that really helped well i think that people seem to forget that when you're flying then you're not flying for that day you're flying for the next day or the you know the day or the afternoon absolutely Cause, yeah cause when they go when they're in when you're in a bubble like when people are visiting a place like Edinburgh, <laughs> they already know what they're going to see on that day yeah so Whatever they whatever they pick up a flyer for, they're gonna try and do the next day when yeah. they're not on the way to see. You do get, I mean, you do get the odd person who you can strong arm in, and they don't really yeah. know what they're doing, or they're walking past and they've got a bit of time and they yeah. don't know what they're going to see, and they're just wandering. But you're absolutely right. The majority of people are planning ahead, um, and I was really because I was really excited that first year that we had got a half seven in the evening slot mm. at this venue, which I thought was a perfect time for people coming out to see comedy. Mm. I knew that I definitely didn't want to be too late. No. Because the sort of stuff that I do, it's not, you know, it's not really, um, I, I wasn't, particularly at that point, I wasn't overly confident with dealing with hecklers or, you know, having too much interaction with the crowd. So I didn't want to be a late night show where everybody's really drunk and leery and yeah. me just sort of in the middle of it looking terrified. Yeah. Uh, and I thought half seven's great for comedy, but what I hadn't thought about at that point was that that's also when a lot of the big name comedians are on. Say, you're competing yeah. <laughs> yeah. with you're competing with the the established acts. Yeah. But again, you know, people who go up to it, they might go up for I don't know five days a week, something like that. They're maybe going to go and see two big acts that they've paid. 25 30 quid to go and see they've still got three nights in that run where they'll take a chance on something yeah. so it did work out like that um but you have to just not be too despondent when you're handing people flyers and you no. see them just carry on up the road and not 
No, I, I, flyering difficult. I try and make it so that um, it's not just hand, you know, putting something in someone's hand. Try and have some kind of interaction with them, some kind of chat, mm-hmm. even if it's just commenting on something that they've done, or yeah. you know, or you didn't want to, you were trying to avoid me, weren't you? Or you know, yeah. just something that that gets them to to say something back to you. And you, yeah. and if you can start a conversation with people, I think it's far more successful than just I mean, the amount of times that you have free comedy, free comedy, free comedy. Who's going to go and see that? You know, no. there's no no um, motivation to go and do that at all. So, no. uh, but the, when I went back this year and was we, we had, I did two shows this year. So one was with a guy called Matt Bragg. Um, Who I met with you at that gong sh- at the gong show. Uh, yes, on the yeah. <laughs> yeah. So neither we went to support. We've got a very good friend called uh, Half Hawkins, who was one of the lads who was staying with us in the flat. And Half was on this gong show. He's gonna kill me for saying this because he, <laughs> he actually, uh, <laughs> he actually, he uh, actually said that he he didn't want to. Uh, I can't remember how he phrased it, but he didn't want to draw draw attention. I think to the fact <laughs> that he was on this gong show. Um, but yeah, we. So Matt was doing a show with us. Harv, Matt, myself, uh, Ryan Mould and Dan Mayo and Andy Gleeks all had a second show. And it would be, each night it would be four of us. Yeah. But, and we would just rotate round who was on the bill that night and yeah. who was doing what. Um, and flyering for that, the, I mean, the other lads, they hated flyering. Uh, Ryan was quite good. Ryan was quite into it. But the others didn't really enjoy flyering at all. Uh, but it was nice when they were when we were all out together because we'd have a bit of banter in between us or yeah. a bit of interaction with people and it's much nicer doing that than that first year where I was on my own just kind of going Free, come and see a show if you want to so um, yeah I think it's it's always good to have a team yeah um, so did you guys do it like in, all in one area or did you split up and do it in different areas when you are flying what we would try and do is we would start off spread a bit wider um we only really did there was people taught and and they're absolutely right the best way to do it i think is to try and fly earlier on and then go back just before your show but um we were sort of too lazy to do that really so we would just do the hour before our show uh, and we would start an hour before the show sort of fairly spread out and over time would get closer and closer in towards the venue and then in the last 10 minutes we were literally just outside trying to shuffle people in really um the best one we had we we were outside there it was for the afternoon show for me and matt and um and 15 minutes before the show started the heavens just absolutely open I there was thunder about, and lightning I think I might have been flying because your show and my show we're, we're on the, the same, same time. time yeah so I think I was out at the same time as that yeah and it worked perfectly for us because yeah. the streets were really busy no one wanted to be outside anymore uh, there was nowhere else to go so we ushered like 40 people yeah. 50 people into the bar um, and you know we were having a bit of fun with that. We were going. We would just check the weather update. It's due to stop raining the moment yeah. the show finishes, and all <laughs> that. You know, all that kind of uh, stuff. Uh, I was telling people outside it wasn't safe for them to be there when the lightning yeah. was coming, and they needed to get inside and save themselves. Um, so we had a bit of fun with that, and and most of them stayed for the show. Not all, no. um, but most of them stayed for the show, and we actually had quite a good. Uh, good although I say that. 
we had a nice audience in terms of size, yeah. but actually they weren't the most responsive audience oh, yeah. because they were there in a in a sort of weather-based hostage situation yeah. rather than um, rather than actually being there because they had come to see the show. Um, so you do get you can have smaller audiences in Edinburgh who are absolutely lovely, yeah. and then larger audiences who are sometimes more more difficult. Difficult. That's what I found. That's what we found with our thing. With our. So once again, you've reached the end of part one. Uh, isn't he just a really, really fucking interesting guy, Mark Rowe? Um, so yeah, if you liked what we had in part one, please click on to part two. See you there. Good.